Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening. If you have enjoyed any previous podcasts, would love a review, would love your feedback, would love to know what is bringing any value to your life, coaching, or athletics. This episode, I've got another amazing guest. In 2017, he was named the best brain trainer by Sports Illustrated. He has worked at IMG Academy, Exos Facilities. He's recently partnered with Russell Wilson to form Limitless Minds. You can find that linked up here. He's worked closely with the likes of Nick Saban, Kirby Smart, and Jimbo Fisher, participating in eight national NCAA championship football games. He's appeared in many ESPN programs. He's the author of It Takes What It Takes. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast, Trevor Moad. Your book, It Takes What It Takes, it's linked up to this podcast. If you don't own it, make sure you go buy yourself a copy. It's one of my favorite reads in a long time, and I think even more than a favorite read is the things you can apply that are within it. And um, not to discourage positivity, but quickly kind of tell, where's the power in neutral thinking? Talk a little bit about that who might be, what's neutral thinking about? I know about positive thinking. Well, first of all, thank you for the opportunity to join and yeah. to have an opportunity to speak to coaches, athletic directors, particularly with your relevance in the high school space. It's a big deal, um, you know, uh, for me, uh, you know, coming from a background of, of being a high school teacher and coach, uh, being raised by high school teachers and coaches. My mom uh, was a teacher, uh, special education uh, for 18 years and uh, women's soccer. And then my dad was uh, uh, English, um, uh, you know, an English teacher, and then uh, um, a state championship uh, high school basketball coach uh, all in the state of Washington. So um, it's just everything starts here. Uh, the foundation that you lay uh, in middle school and high school, I think, are so pivotal. Uh, and coaches are force multipliers, uh, and athletics uh, directors enable, uh, provide the platform for coaches to be the best they can be. So, uh, so it's great to join you and I'm glad that you're, you're out running the show and you got the new podcast going. Um, so it's a, a privilege to be on it. Um, well, you know, it's a, it's a big evolution, um, to be raised by a father who was, who would ultimately, you know, leave teaching and coaching in the, in the mid seventies and be established himself as one of the, the bigger motivational educators, you know, in the continuing education space for teachers uh, and, and uh, but then ultimately for Boeing, for NASA, uh, you know, for many of the top business organizations in the world, uh, and then ultimately be one of the original authors in Chicken Soup for the Soul, and then become the president of the National Association for Self-Esteem. Um, you know, I, I always understood at a young age that while most of the data around being positive was anecdotal, that negative thinking, the data was really clear and there was that negative thinking worked negatively. Getting sick young, at a young age, having to drop out of school um, and going through some challenges really helped me understand that. Uh, but ultimately, I think when I would get to IMG Academy, which was another high school, uh, the, you know, the uh, biggest training uh, facility in the world, uh, and I would work more with the, the professional and the older athletes, 
But, uh, you know, I also spent five years with the U.S. soccer and the younger athletes. Um, I, you know, you, you just – when you're teaching eight, nine hours a day, ten hours a day, and, and you're teaching, you know, uh, the power of the mind and developing a psychological architecture and all those things, I just started to realize that the challenges I had at a young age – well, I never doubted the veracity and negativity. I had a real tough time being going to a positive space, uh, even though it was in my DNA to some degree. So uh, I'd always been searching for something that seemed more practical. Sure. And, um, and, but, you know, for years, going back to Norman Vincent Peale, uh, obviously places like, you know, you were involved with Positive Coaching Alliance. Uh, to, uh, you know, these guys making stacks of money like John Gordon and, uh, you know, all those different types of things, you know, that was the brand. You're either positive or you were negative. And uh, yeah. I just, you know, I started working in the SEC, uh, you know, uh, well, eight seasons with the Jaguars, a season with the Dolphins, with Coach Saban. Then I started at Alabama. And <clears throat> it just was a tough message to sell. You know, you got 85% of your players from single-parent backgrounds, almost 60% below the poverty line. Be positive, be positive, be positive. Uh, it was a tough message, but, but they understood that negativity was not where they wanted to be. So, uh, you know, the book's going to go into it in more depth, but the idea of, I think, first, people have to understand the power of negativity. And all the book really goes clearly established is – is that negative thinking will weaponize you against you and your internal thoughts are much less powerful than your external words and your internal consumption. I think that that becomes really powerful once you start to understand, you know, so much of the brand today in the self-help industry is mindfulness and meditation and, and really trying to attack, how do I change my inside thoughts? And when you start to study the data, the inside thoughts have nowhere near the power as the outside words and the inside consumption. And my second year, between my first and second year at the University of Alabama, Coach Saban gave me a lot of flexibility. What's going to maximize our teaching time, you know, relative to 90 minutes within an NCAA 22-hour week? Like, what's, what's the most relevant information? And as we started looking at the data, Georgetown, Harvard, Mayo Clinic, Cleveland Clinic, negativity was so much more powerful than positivity uh, that if we can learn how to be less negative, we never had to emphasize being more positive. And uh, negativity is a multiple four to seven times more powerful than positivity. And when we, when we verbalize something, uh, it's 10x. So we found out when our athletes would say negative things out loud, it would increase the probability by 40 to 70 times that what they said out loud would likely happen. And so what if we could just get them to not say stupid things out loud uh, was our first goal and we could win and it made sense to them and it really resonated with them. And we had a lot of data, videos, stories uh, that were very clear. And then ultimately that's the first step. You got to understand that negative and people like, no, I need to vent. There's no science that backs up venting. Right. You can vent, but there are consequences, sure. you know, and, and, and so it just is what it is. It goes back to our hard wiring 10,000 years ago. 
dinosaurs. You know, we, we were wired to assume the worst was going to happen to protect ourselves. And, 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 and the world's not that way anymore. Um, so um, that's really the key. Neutral would be an offshoot, you know, that we would ultimately get to. Uh, uh, basically, uh, neutral is the idea that, okay, well, negativity is 47 times more powerful. When we go there, it starts bleeding into our future. Positivity is so often connected to an outcome that we're told to change our state too fast for our comfort zone. You know, you're going through a divorce, you're struggling, you've been furloughed, you're not playing well, and somebody's telling you, hey, let it go, and things are going to be this way, things are going to be that way. And in your mind, you're like, no, they're not. Or you got, you're divorced, you're going through a divorce, someone says, well, think about all the people you get to date now. Well, you got married to date nobody. And right. so you're not there mentally, you know. So, uh, so neutral is the idea that the past is real, but it's not predictive. And our players really gravitated to that. Like, hey, we're not playing well. But that doesn't mean the second half couldn't be different. Hey, you haven't done well your first two years in high school. It's truth. You got to own it. But, but that's not an indictment for your future if you're willing to change your behavior now. And it's just a, a, a truth-based, non, non-judgmental way of looking at things, focusing on the next behavior as opposed to the past or future outcome. Love it. Love it. So definitely dive more into the book. One of the things I wanted to pull from it is this uh, analogy that I, I really liked of a, a car stick shift um, going from reverse to drive. Um, can you talk about that analogy a little bit? Yeah. You know, neutral's always had a term like, a, like stoicism, you know, hyper calm, uh, Taoism a little bit. Like when we were thinking about it, it was more like a car. Reverse being negative, positive being forward, and you can't go from negative, you can't go from reverse to forward or, or the other way. So neutral was the idea that um, you got to get to this middle ground. All right, what, like what's happening? Like, okay, all right, so this is the circumstance. This is the truth. Now I can change my behavior and go this direction, or I can go back to what I was doing and go back to that direction. But either way, I'm, I'm getting to a middle point and then i can make a decision one way or another more rationally based on the truth and you got to respect people's right to be negative or positive um you know but average people become average through average behavior uh not average aptitude and 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 so uh you know to me that was the idea of the car of just like hey man let's just get back to the middle see what the truth is and then at that point we can decide if we want to change or not Right on. Um, so taking the questions in the reverse a little bit, um, you talked a little bit about the, your father's impact and, and also being a teacher. Can you talk a little bit more about uh, your journey can, from a kind of maybe college athlete to uh, high performance coach of uh, Russell Wilson? Yeah. Um, well, um, I think college sports for me going to Occidental College, uh, a good athletic division three school playing uh, basketball and soccer, but also doing theater, uh, doing music, being a member of a fraternity, you know, it was a really well-rounded education. Uh, academically, I was a dumbass compared to most of the people at Occidental. Uh, you know, uh, school was hard for me for sure. I went to great schools, which I love because 
those schools lifted me up, you know, and, you know, and, and uh, you know, we just honored the students at Occidental with the Trevor Moat inspiration, uh, uh, inspiration, uh, leadership award. Uh, That's awesome. The, uh, that they give to the, the students that represent the school from a character perspective on and off the field. And I was distinguished alumni at Charles Wright Academy last year. And I say that uh, because I have like a 26 IQ and both those schools rewarded toughness, grit, hard work, effort. And even though I was competing against, you know, half my graduating class in high school went to the Ivy League, I was still able to really compete against them because I, I never let the fact that what takes me four hours might take someone else 15 minutes. That, that wasn't my journey. It wasn't going to be 15 minutes. So, I, you know, I accepted who I was, but I was also willing to grind and then ultimately get there. And, and while many of my friends are really successful now too, uh, I found my way, uh, you know, in that journey. So, uh, I, I, so high school was great. Occidental College was great. Uh, as a basketball player, I struggled, you know, seven points was my career high a couple of times. And, but the experience was really powerful for me because I struggled with my self-image. Uh, soccer was great just to be good at a sport. But the whole well-rounded experience was great. Uh, I went into teaching because I wanted to play pro soccer and Major League Soccer was starting up. And uh, LA Unified was a year-round school, gave me some flexibility. Um, and uh, it was a, an interesting experience for me, coming from a private school to teaching 150 kids, three preps, 15% of our kids going to college. Uh, it, was, it was like Harvard for classroom management. Yeah. It was really important for me. It was a great experience. Uh, and then two years of uh, teaching and coaching, uh, under 17, under 15, under 18 girls in Boca Raton, Florida. Uh, you know, those girls got the very best that I had. I'm often asked, you know, like, uh, what do you like them versus now? Frosty Westering, the football coach at Pacific Lutheran, used to say, make the big time where you are. Yeah. Um, I believe you got to be good at where you're at before you go anywhere. Uh, I, I don't approach the Miami Dolphins any different than I did the under 15 girls from Boca Raton. I think problems are relative. I think they fill them the same way. 14-year-old girl might think if she doesn't play well, her parents aren't going to feed her. A 31-year-old quarterback in the NFL might think the same way about a contract, but they feel the pressure the same way. Sure. Well, I, I like the evolution. I thought it was natural. Going to IMG Academy was great uh, because it prepared me to deal with you know, uh, the Eli Mannings, the Peyton Mannings, the Serena and the Venuses, but having a good evolution of, you know, they're just people. Uh, we're just trying to get better. And then, you know, uh, I learned how to provide a, a value proposition. No different than I always loved teaching, but I didn't love social sciences as much as I loved the psychological elements. Uh, but I love teaching and, um, and, and, and coaching. And uh, so it, I really, it's a, you know, where I work now in, in the business world and the sports world and the military world, I'm a teacher. It's just a different platform. And this past year, we made a decision uh, to speak to a much larger audience, um, you know, and Maria Shriver, President Kennedy's niece, had, had challenged me, uh, said instead of 150 athletes, uh, try to take your message to 150 million people because nobody's approaching the, the psychological space the way you are. But, you know, I didn't even have social media or any of that stuff, and which I never needed in the world I was from. Uh, 
you know, so it was really hard to know what the message was. So the book was really about taking a message that's simple. And then I also wanted to write the book from a position that like, I'm very fallible. Uh, I make a lot of mistakes. I've struggled. I've had a lot of challenges. I didn't want to write the book from like a superhero, like all these dudes. I made $8 billion, do what I did. You know, I haven't made $800, let alone 8 billion. So, you know, I've had to, uh, you know, I've maintained a lot of perspective and it's been easy to maintain humility when you work at the highest level in, in sports and in the military. No doubt. I, one thing I appreciate about the book as well is, is the vulnerabilities you share and, and some of yeah. the, the things. And, and I think, you know, it brings authentic messages to it. Um, and kind of, you talked a little that, that, It's so crazy for me that people say that because like, who isn't, you know, like going through divorce, who just smokes through that? Yeah. You know, like to me, my dad, the, the things I learned most from my dad was not like, okay, are you going to go into this field? Or are you not? All my dad cared about is that the things I was raised from four years old, self-esteem wise, that when life tested me, I could live it. And when things were good, I could live it, you know, live these skills. And that's why I think the self-esteem you know, like I, all I wanted to do is demystify. I feel like mindset, sports psychology, business psychology, they've tried to make it only for people with Harvard degrees. And it, it's, not that, it's not that hard, you <laughs> yeah. know, like let's look at it more from a basic level. Just, you know, let's, let's, let's demystify it a little bit. Meditating is not the answer. You know, is it, is it part of the, the piece of the puzzle for sure? You know, but it's not the first part and it isn't, what should be leading our industry right now? And is neutral thinking the answer? Who knows? But it's worked in some pretty big moments in the eight national championships I've been a part of with three teams. Uh, we've won five. Uh, and in that, you know, and, and, and I've seen it at big moments. And I think the book addresses that. Yeah, no doubt. Um, so, and you mentioned earlier too about uh, just academic, um, you're an athlete, you're busy, you're a cancer survivor. You've overcome a lot. You, you share that in the book. Um, what are some, you know, for athletes or coaches listening, you know, that, that deal with some of just you know, the adversities that teenagers and student athletes face? So that's something you would share with them as a piece of advice. Yeah, well, it's interesting. You know, in college when I had to drop out of school, I had an initial diagnosis, uh, but fortunately ended up with shingles and colitis. But dropping out and uh, having to drop out in that whole experience really made me, uh, of being sick, <clears throat> really made me realize that this whole idea of my mind being an asset was real. You know, like, it, it just... You know, in dealing with any type of illness, uh, having to drop out of school, uh, you know, uh, fortunately not ending up with what I thought I had. Um, and then all the other experiences. Um, the, the problem with the mind is we don't see it the way we see it's human performance cousins. You know, yeah. you, bigger, faster, stronger. We, we make uh, adaptations to our training. We get bigger, faster, stronger. We make adjustments to our food, our nutrient timing, even our fatigue science as we study sleep and we make adaptations to our sleep, we see change and in the mind, we just don't see it the same way. So it, it just, it's easy to pretend it's fictitious or that we can't control it or the industry is so focused on 
changing like self-talk and inner thoughts, which is really hard that it's, it's minimizing outer words, which it's not hard. It's just discipline, you know? So, um, you know, I, I just think that the, the best for people, you know, don't let your past become a prelude to your future. Like starting today is a big deal. And so many of us are so overwhelmed by our past decisions that we just, it, it's like, you know, you open up a bag of Doritos and you have like eight chips and you're like, you know what? F it. And you smoke the bag rather than just, you know, and then you say, Oh, I better be positive and you eat like an apple. You know, <laughs> you're just better off. Like, you know, getting down your eight chips and just saying, you know what? Uh, I ate eight chips. I ate half the bag. Stop, you know, and, and, and then just stop, you know, and, and, and then you still have half a bag and, and you don't concede. You know, still the, got that apple. Yeah. Or, or, well, you don't even worry about the apple because, like I said, uh, it's not going to get rid of what you did. But by not continuing to eat bad is the first step. Right. You know, and, and, and that's why I think people try to throw positivity on the top of negativity or just stop being negative. Right. Just like because I tried to do. A lot of people do. <laughs> but like, you overwhelm, like positivity and negativity don't play on the same field. Look at our politics right now. A negative message destroys a positive message. It's not even close. Yeah. <clears throat> That's why you see it being played out the way it does. No <clears throat> but I think a neutral message is, is the way to go. No doubt. <laughs> um, along that journey, the, the amazing teams and athletes you've been around, um, <clears throat> obviously, you know, I think just being around people that are striving to be better becomes a, a two-way learning sometimes. Is there a lesson – uh, or two that sticks out from a coach or team or athlete, you don't have to share who they are, that, that you learned from your work alongside them? Well, I think, you know, I think Russell Wilson's a great example for people that follow football because he's so out of the physiological norms of what the sport requires at 5'9", you know, and he's such a great example of behavior preceding success. Yes. I remember three, year, three years ago, he did a high ankle sprain, grade two MCL, and a subluxated shoulder, and didn't miss a game. And I truly believe that he thinks if he comes out of a game, they'll never play him again. And, um, but what people didn't know is he had a, you know, a physical therapist living with him. He'd go to bed at 10, get up at 11.30, and do treatment from 11.30 to 12. He'd go to bed at 12, get up at 1.30, do treatment from 1.30 to 2. He'd go to bed at 2, get up at 3.30 and do treatment from 3.30 to 4. Get up at 5.30, do 30 minutes of treatment, go into the building, and then do treatment at the building, go into meetings, and then not miss practice. Didn't miss a practice with three major injuries. That's like it takes what it takes. Yeah. You know, and, and uh, you know, I was, uh, we did an, uh, an interview about that recently with Luke Del Rio, uh, Jack Del Rio's son. He used to coach the Jaguars. And Luke had the same grade two MCL and missed three weeks and, uh, like before he could even practice. And he saw Russ had the same injury and he called me because, uh, you know, I, I was close to, to Luke through uh, his dad and through Jordan Palmer, uh, Carson's younger brother. And uh, he said, I can't even walk and this dude doesn't miss a practice. And he said, how is this possible? And then I had him 
get on the phone and he talked to Russell and Russell was willing to, you know, and, and there was just, you know, like just things that Russell's done with his flexibility and prehabilitation and all these things. Russell's just a great example of if you're willing to do the things that great performers do, regardless of your aptitude, and Russ has obviously incredible aptitude, but size is a real thing in football. Let's be honest. No um, and, uh, you know, you're going to give yourself a chance. So many of us end up measuring ourselves by who we think we're not. Mm. Well, I don't have his height. I don't have his looks like Russell's a great example of, I'm going to use the gifts I have and see where I end up. And I think if there's anything I'd want to leave your audience with, it'd be, are you using what you have? You know, anybody can tell you what they don't have. Are you using what you do have? Because, uh, you know, I don't think God makes junk and he doesn't sponsor any flops, you know, and I think we have a lot of gifts. I like that. Doesn't sponsor flops, doesn't make junk. Um, one question I always like to ask is, uh, how do you define success? Yeah, you know, I, I think establishing value for whatever organization I'm a part of, you know, I think in the business world, you know, if, if sometimes for coaches, I, you know, I'm, I'm writing speeches other times I'm dealing more with players. Other times I'm more of an external advisor, you know, whatever. But that I can establish value and be relevant in, in important moments. <clears throat> I think it's a big deal to me, you know, to – I remember Maria Taylor from ESPN was, was uh, <clears throat> coming to interview Kirby Smart at Georgia the, the day of the uh, national semifinal. Uh, we were in L.A. And I, I'm walking out of our uh, conference room. And I'm with Jake Fromm, our quarterback, and he's got my phone. And then I shut the door. Maria Taylor is, like, freaking out. Why are you with Jake? Why are you with Jake? What's wrong with him? And I'm like, we meet every morning of the game, and I meet with 35, 40 of our players every night. Like, it's just part of what we've been doing. Uh, it's part of our process. It's you don't need to be sick to get better. It's, it's just 10, 15, 20 minutes. And I had him on the phone with Jameis Winston, uh, who was the quarterback at Florida State, who was the only other 18-year-old to play in the Rose Bowl. Yeah. And I, and I called Jameis and said, you willing to jump on the phone with Jake? And we watched Jameis' final drive to win the national championship versus Auburn. Then got Jameis on the phone. They talked. I said, whatever you guys talk about is for you. And I stepped out, then I went back in. And then, you know, but I was explaining to Maria, like, this is what we do. But I love the fact that, A, Kirby gave me the opportunity to earn that relevance with our players – uh, and, and then B, that, that you're able to become a part of their process. You know, a lot of, uh, you know, their dues ain't going to thank you that much or whatever, but all I want to do is be a part of it. Crazy enough, that game, uh, Jameis did it with a minute 20. Jake would do it with three minutes, take us right down, score the touchdown, and take us into overtime. You know, and, it, you know, it's just the power of that piece, and I've always been so gifted that Nick Saban, Jimbo Fisher, Kirby Smart, you know, because sports psychology – hasn't grown as an industry. Not many teams are using it. Yeah. You know, there's not many teams, not many people. Uh, so the fact that I've been able to, you know, mental conditioning to, to have a role, now I'm transitioning more into the business world where you can make some money. Uh, but, uh, you know, it is great for me. I think other success in my life is living in alignment with my values, uh, with my faith, my spirituality, uh, my belief that I can be, you know, uh, uh, you know, I still talk to my ex-wife all the time. We're great friends. Uh, we just got really disconnected from the travel and all the things. I want to be better there going forward. Um, you know, uh, 
and just living in alignment with the things that are important to me because uh, you know, whatever those things are, I think are, I think there's a whole nother level for me to get to. I love it. Well, I know we're all going to enjoy as you ascend to that level. Um, thoughts, beliefs, performance. You talked about some of the statistics earlier about the power of negative thinking. That's one of the things I love is just don't say stupid shit out loud. Um, <laughs> amazing power in that. Um, but even the secondary, the secondary elements as well of, uh, you know, three minutes of news before 9am increases your probability by 27%. You're going to say you had a bad day. Do you think news uh, organizations understand the, the negativity versus uh, positivity probability factor? Of course they do. It's their responsibility to understand that. And, and, uh, and their advertisers and their consumers, there's responsibilities not to the truth. You know, it doesn't mean that they wouldn't like to, but they're entertainment, you know, and I, I think what I'm most proud of is in the last three months, while I've been dealing with this thing is, you know, steering clear of that, uh, going to the truth. You know, I, I work as an advisor with the LA Clippers. They give us great truth-based factors for Southern California. These are the realities to what's going on. So I don't indulge in, in, in the politics of the whole thing. And I don't allow myself to, to go down because, you know, anything around the health stuff, it, scares me i know but i know that about myself so i don't want to have anonymity like i could follow politics i think it's interesting and fun but you can't you can't watch the news without the health stuff now and i think you have to have like a good balance the music you listen to the people you talk to i just think people control the things that are within their control don't worry about like what's going on in your mind everybody's all over the place there that's okay but but who i'm talking to what i'm watching and what i'm saying I'm always in control of that. And, uh, and if you can get that right and you were never more positive, but you got that right, uh, it would change your life. I love it. So, uh, last question, uh, we kind of like to ask here, if you could hop into a DeLorean, a time machine, go visit 16 year old Trevor and give yourself one piece of advice that, you know, you've learned along your journey, what would be the thing you'd want to tell your younger self? Great question. Um, you know, I think by 16, I had a pretty good understanding of my identity and I was pretty comfortable with myself, which was amazing. My 14 year old self was a different version. Uh, but, um, you know, I, I, I think probably the bigger thing that, that I would, uh, I'd probably talk to myself about my confidence, um, you know, and about learning to, to measure me versus me. I, th I think I, I think I eventually got there. Um, but I think the understanding of I, I spent a lot of time uh, in some areas of my life worried about who I wasn't. And uh, I accepted the fact that I didn't have the same aptitude that other people had. Um, but by the end of college, I think by dropping out of college really reframed me. And I really wish I didn't have to go through that uh, to, to, to learn. And that's why I have such great empathy for people that think all the psychological stuff's bullshit, you know, because I know how hard it is, uh, you know, uh, to, to buy into it and, and believe we have influence and believe that it's a skill and, you know, um, and, and I've, uh, you know, understanding and, and, and people that, Hey, just be positive, be positive, be positive. But I, I think I would, you know, Trev, uh, you've got 
more than enough. It take you got what it takes. Uh, you know, just keep focusing on being the best you you can be. Um, you know, and and that's and that's more than enough. <laughs>